Welcome to The Public Morality. I became aware of the artist Dred Scott back in 1989 when President George H.W. Bush called Scott's work entitled What is the Proper Way to Display the U.S. Flag, quote-unquote, disgraceful, and the United States Senate took subsequent action. Twenty years later, Scott created another participatory work of art through the lens of an unflattering aspect of American history, Scott's Slave Rebellion reenactment, where hundreds of participants echoed the chants of the formerly enslaved to recreate the 1811 slave revolt outside of New Orleans that spanned 24 miles over a two-day period. We are honored on the public rally to be in conversation with this brilliant public intellectual. Dred Scott, welcome to the public morality. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. How does Dred Scott define artistic expression? Well, I'm an artist and, you know, it's like, you know, certainly, you know, for the past 70 or so years, art has had a really broad range. I don't just do painting. I don't just do sculpture. Um, art can be just about anything. That doesn't mean that everything is art. But, you know, I work in performance, I work in video, I work in photo-based work, I work in installation, I work in sculpture. For me, the question is, what's the content of the work? And a lot of my art actually is have, asking an audience to rethink and think about some of the cohering ideas of American society, often to rethink and challenge some long-held assumptions, and sometimes to think about how the world could be radically different and far better. Uh, examining... Uh, the American narrative, it, would you say that's part of your through line that, co that connects your work, sort of looking at the absurdity uh, of the American narrative? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like I make art about the country that I grew up in and I live in and I know most about. And I think most artists do. You know, it's like art is really, um, you know, it, it's a product of the mind of the artist at the times and the place that they live in. And I've grown up in America and a lot of my work looks at and uses and deploys U.S. history, because I think you can't understand the present without understanding that past. How did we get here? And so that that has been a through line. It's not all of what I do, but it, it has been a, a very important topic over you know 30 years of my work to, to sort of deploy and mine U.S. history. Uh, speaking uh, of that of that 30 year trajectory, you, 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 you burst on the national scene, at least for me, I'll, I'll say it like that. When President George H.W. Bush, you know, called your work, uh, quote unquote, disgraceful. Could you offer our listeners a, a retrospective of that moment? I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in what that moment felt like for you personally, in addition. Yeah, well, you know, George H.W. Bush, Bush one is a great art critic. I mean, if he doesn't like my work, then I'm doing something right. This was a guy who was the former head of the CIA and a president at the time of the United States. And this is a country that was founded on slavery and genocide. The piece that he specifically didn't like was an artwork called What is the Proper Way to Display a U.S. Flag? And it was an installation for audience participation. It consisted of a photo montage, which some people might think of as a collage, but it was actually all on one piece of paper that had text that said, what is the proper way to display a U.S. flag? And then below that was an image of South Korean students burning American flags, holding signs that said, Yankee, go home, son of a bitch. And below that was an image of, of flag-draped coffins coming back from Vietnam in a troop transport. And then attached below the photograph to the wall was a shelf that had books that people could write responses to the title of the work. And below that was a three-by-five-foot flag that people had the option of standing on. Um, 
A lot of people did, some people didn't, but people interacted with the work. And Bush thought that, that transgressive use of the flag was something that was offensive to him. And I, I think, well, all right, that, you know, if the president of the United States doesn't like what I'm doing, then I must be doing something right, right on to that. And it's a job I want to do for the, the rest of my life. Well, well, not only the president of the United States, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but, but the Senate took uh, some sort of... Um some sort of uh, meaningless action uh, to to uh, deploy your to deploy, deploy your work, and moreover, you had a number of responses in the writing writing um, that was provided in the artworks. I mean, some of it was very complimentary, but some of it was rather uh, let's just say vitriolic. And I'm I'm wondering because you 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 were young at the time. Uh, well, you're still young, but you were really young at the time that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can you recall how you were feeling uh, uh, just about some of the, 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 the myriad responses that you were receiving at the time? Yeah, well, first off, just to clear up, I ain't young no more. I mean, you and I, I'm looking at you. We each have some gray hair in our beard, so so I'm officially old now. It's called Grecian. But, um, I put Grecian formula in my beard to look this way. It's really not It's really not like <laughs> Okay, okay. Well, I was 24 back at the time. That was 1989, I, and, and that was a long time ago. So, um, all right. I mean – the, the thing is, first of all, Congress's action in the Senate wasn't meaningless. They outlawed the artwork, which was very serious. They t they passed this law that was about far more than my artwork, but actually to effectively make patriotism compulsory, that people could not criticize the flag. And that is one step away from saying people can't criticize the government. That's very serious. They were effectively ripping up their First Amendment to, to say that the only permissible view of the American flag was that, that you could wave it on a pole. And that's very dangerous. And so when I and others defied that law as a part of political protest, we burned flags on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. That went straight to the Supreme Court. And they took that case in an effort to try and put us in jail. And so and as part of sort of making public opinion that this country was not going to tolerate people critical of its flag and its government. And so that that was very serious. Going back to the artwork, the artwork was an installation for audience participation and a lot of people participated. And so the, as you pointed out, some people were very supportive. There were some people who said things like, you know, um, you know, the police shot my brother and then walked over to kick over his body to make sure the nigger was dead. That cop was wearing a flag. Thank you for the opportunity to stand on this flag, Dred Scott. And so there were people that were writing from bitter, painful experience of what this system does to them and talking and, and this this artwork gave those people an opportunity to talk about this flag and US patriotism in this country in a, in a forum that they normally would be shut out for because normally the people who got to talk about the flag were the people that, that would wave the flag, that would consider themselves very patriotic. And so there were also a lot of comments like that. And then there were comments that were you know basically death threats and people telling me to go back to Africa, which frankly, I would love to go to Africa. Africa sounds pretty pretty hype to me, but you know it's like the racism that was you know like behind that, go back to the jungles of Africa. You know, it's like, well, you know, let, that that's a conversation that the, the racism that was brought out by somebody talking about what the history of the U.S. flag represents was something that they felt felt that I should be grateful to have my ancestors have been enslaved here and that, you know, I should be thankful that I'm still here. And I think that, you know, I would much rather talk about what's the legacy of this country and giving a platform for people to have a very visceral and visible debate over that question, because it wasn't just me saying the flag. Um, it was actually me opening up a question 
for people to have a broad debate. And a lot of people did. And, you know, from just ordinary people in the housing projects up to the president of the United States in Congress. You know, you know, one, one of the things that struck me about that moment is just sort of the irony that, you know, you had the, you had a, the, the sitting president of the United States subjectively bemoaning your work for you subjectively operating out of the lens that you saw the American narrative. I mean, <laughs> that just seems to be an irony to me. I wonder, I wonder how you saw that. <laughs> well, I saw it as that, you know, people with, with power and, and sort of, um, sort of the common, sort of not exactly common sense, but the, the backing of, of, of the prevailing norms of society they have the ability to say all sorts of things and get away with it. And so it's, you know, in most times people, you know, radicals and revolutionaries aren't actually given a platform on national television or in a major museum to, to sharply talk about what the experience of people whose, you know, children are murdered by the cops or brothers are murdered by the cops. Normally that isn't sort of part of the debate and discourse. And that's what was so transgressive and disruptive about this work, which was very, Beautiful, I thought. And so, you know, the fact that that I'm seeing this, you know, so-called the most powerful man in the world having to come down off his throne and get in a debate with a previously unknown 24-year-old art student in a Midwestern art school, I'm like, all right, let's get it on. Let's talk about this. Because, you know, this is actually, you know, sort of exposing the fragileness of this system that that you can't even tolerate a, again an unknown art student in midwestern art school in a student exhibition saying wait what does this flag represent it's sort of as if people might see that the emperor has no clothes yeah, uh, and these, these are my words um i felt then and and and, uh, and 30 years later uh, uh, thereabout uh, i still feel the same way there was a there was a disingenuous aspect um uh, to the argument in that the president and all sort of as assumed, uh, and this is one of the challenges, I think, of the American narrative, that they assumed that there's a homogenized way that one should view America. And any time one offers uh, the contrarian perspective, they're out of step. And so you, you sort of, in 1989, you, you became, in my view, Exhibit A, you know, for, for this ongoing um, culture war debate. Now, I wonder how you saw that. Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in I made the work in 88, and it became the center of controversy in 89. And, you know, as a relatively young person, I did I had no idea that, you know, 30, 35 years later, the culture wars would be, you know, being waged the way they are, that there would be a man named Colin Kaepernick, who was a great football player who'd be thrown out of his job for you know criticizing you know what this country does and using the platform of the national anthem to do that but then be told look you can't work because you didn't basically salute the flag and so you know i had no idea where all this would go but i did know that it was actually getting at the heart of some big questions and and i i don't think it was you know i, I think that the people who run this country actually desperately want people to believe their narrative. It's not that they don't think that there aren't people that dissent and they, 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 I mean, they know they brutalize people. They know they exploit people. They know they drop bombs on people all around the world. They know that they, you know, you know, I mean, right now it's, it's, you know, the, the 
people that are say suffering from COVID disproportionately are, you know, black and indigenous. And, and they, the people who run this country know that. They know this country was founded on slavery and genocide, but they want people to actually think that everybody can become rich and powerful. And that's what you should be. You should be an American. You should have aspirations of being, you know, the, the, the CEO of something. You should want to be Jeff Bezos. You should want to be, you know, uh, uh, hey, Biden or Trump, you know? And, and I think that that, that, sort of belief in America has been a very useful tool for a country that exploits millions and millions of people in this country and billions of people around the world. Now, now you 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 referenced earlier the the uh, Supreme Court case, and that was United States versus Eichmann, correct? Yeah, U.S. Okay. versus Eichmann. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and and that was, um, and and the court. Sided with you that that, that these laws uh, were were unconstitutional because they you know they, because they were uh, an encroachment on, on free expression. Yeah. My, my question for you: we, you know, We've seen it on a number of occasions within the American narrative when the when the federal government has found discomfort with uh, with with the protections guaranteed in the First Amendment. I'm thinking. You know, from you know Billy Holiday singing "Strange Fruit" and banning certain books like Huckleberry Finn to Beloved, your work and and, and others. And so it seems, at least to me, that the artists, uh, and I'm using that in that larger sense that you, you we started this yeah. conversation with, um, uh, is uniquely positioned to test whether this country is truly committed to its original precepts. And I wonder how you saw that. Well, I think this country is is very committed to its original precepts, and that is that a small handful of white enslavers and their descendants and friends should rule the country. It's very committed to that. I don't think it's all that committed to, quote unquote, all men are created equal, because the people who wrote that actually owned people, and they were writing the laws, and, and the U.S. Constitution was written by enslavers and friends of enslavers to, to define the legal and political framework of a society whose economic foundation and roots were in slavery. And so it's this you know, belief of, of you know, we the people and everybody has rights and even people can, can have dissenting views, that didn't really extend to people to, to, to seriously undermine and challenge those other principles of the right to own property, including human property. And so um, you know, I, I think that, that you know, pointing out to Billie Holiday, I mean, that's actually really important. You know, her song Strange Fruit is a, a beautiful, beautiful song, but it was a cry against the, the scourge of lynching, which was terrorizing the black community and had been, you know, since the time of the Civil War. And, you know, she was hounded and harassed to almost to the point of causing her death. And and so, you know, it, it's it's sort of the fact that songs like that and artists like that and other the artists you talk about right now with Toni Morrison and even the 1619 Project, which was you know edited by by uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, which you, you're broadcasting out of, of North Carolina, which she was denied tenure in that state, you know, being a Pulitzer Prize winner and a MacArthur genius. And she was asked, you know, well, what credentials do you have? And so it, it's this 1619 Project is, was, is basically being fought over because this country and powerful people in it don't want that history taught. And so I think the artists have an important role to raise these voices, but it's the, the question is not, you know, will this country live up to some 
mythical ideals, but is more can we use the ideals which are just a crumb and a slice of, 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 of uh, a founding document to fight for rights that can actually get to, to justice. I don't think that, that I'm not looking to sort of perfect America or make, make it live up to some supposed ideals. I think it is doing exactly what it's intended to, and that's causing hell for millions and millions and millions of people. And I think we need to get beyond that. I'm speaking with internationally known artist uh, Dred Scott about his art and his activism. Um, you were born Scott Tyler. At what point did you take on the name Dred Scott? And would you share with our listeners the history behind the name, if you would? Yeah, well, you know, uh, my parents were good people. They would not name somebody Dred Scott, but I, I'm a professional troublemaker. So um, when I was becoming an artist, I said, well, I need sort of a nom de plume or a nom de guerre. And, you know, it's like, and to be honest, I was young. I was tw like 23 when I took the name. And, and you know, I, I, I was into punk rock and I had friends that were named like Virus X and, and uh, Lee Ving. And, and, you know, there were a lot of names that had puns in them and stuff like that. And so, but I wanted a name that actually really talked about American history. And, and so my parents named me Scott. I had dreadlocks at the time. The few dreads that were in Chicago or that were in my circles were named Jimmy Dredd or Steve Dredd. And I'm like, yo, I'll be Dred Scott. That's perfect. Because anytime anybody says that name, they're going to have to think about the 1857 Supreme Court case, Dred Scott versus Sanford, which as part of the ruling from the, the and, and the, the opinion of the chief justice at the time, there were no rights that a black person had that a white man was bound to respect. And, and I would really encourage people to read that that Supreme Court ruling, because it, it is, you know, it's like it's 41 pages, you can get it for free on the Library of Congress, uh, you know, website, and it is the most straight up, well thought out argument for white supremacy I've ever read. And it's deeply rooted in the US Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and US law and custom to that point. Taney explicitly said, basically, the founding fathers did not think of Africans and descendants of Africans as citizens, or frankly, even human beings. And that you know, um, Americans could do with black people and Africans whatever they wanted, and that that was their role on on Earth. And so, you know, I think that that you know, wanting to wanting people to think about that, think about that history when they heard my name, the name of an artist referencing that was something that you know was was important to me. Uh, how do you, how do you deal? I, I'm assuming over the over the years, not just with. Uh, 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 the 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 American flag. Uh, 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 artwork that you did, we talked about earlier. How do you feel when you receive uh, pushback um, that you that you may be rewriting history? I'm, I'm assuming you've 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 gotten something or some variation of of that theme. How, how do you respond to that? Well, yeah, I mean, some people want me dead, um, and and some people accuse me. I mean, like most recently, I did an artwork called "White Male for Sale." which was an NFT, which we could talk about if you want. For your listeners who might not know, NFTs are called non-fungible tokens. It's a new internet thing where people could basically have digital artwork and have it be authenticated digitally online. And I mean, I don't want to go into all of why I made it, but basically I had a white guy on an auction block in Black Brooklyn and a video of that. And then it was auctioned off at, at an auction house named Christie's. And so when I put this out, a lot of people told me that this was unfair, that it was rewriting history, that it was not the truth, that actually what was what I really missed was that uh, Africans enslaved tons of Europeans, millions and millions of Europeans were enslaved, and I just didn't know that. And I'm like, uh, well, 
yeah, maybe I missed that. Uh, if you could show me the documents <laughs> where there, there was this massive enslavement of white people, I'd be, I'd love to know that, but it's just not true. And so the the question with a lot of people that are pushing back against what I'm saying is, either they are ignorant, which sometimes is true, because in this society, a lot of people don't know things. And by saying ignorant, I'm not saying they're stupid, but a lot of people, you know, if you grow up in American school, you're probably not going to learn, say, about the Dred Scott decision. You're not going to learn. I mean, over half people in the United States don't know that the cause of the Civil War was over slavery, even though it wasn't a moral question, but that's what it was being fought about. And so, you know, when basic foundational things aren't known, some people are genuinely ignorant and are, are upset that I'm sort of exposing something they don't know. And then other people, I think, do know the, the history and uh, are trying to preserve this, you know, a society that, that again, is both founded on slavery and genocide, but has white supremacy rooted in its sort of cohering ideas. And so when I make work that challenges that and challenges that history, you know, people sometimes don't want that brought out. I mean, it's, you know, the people who like like when a lot of monuments of, of, of white supremacist Confederate you know leaders were taken down recently and have been challenged and subject to criticism. And people are a lot of people got jumped out and said, well, you guys are trying to erase history. And it's like, well, actually, no, we're trying to focus on history. It's just that the history that you're trying to talk about is is the upside down, twisted version of it. And I think, say, the people of Germany have done a very good job of talking about the horrors of fascism without having monuments to Hitler without having highways named after Goebbels, without having schools named after Heinrich Kimmler. You know, they've done a really good job at focusing on, on how bad fascism was and that that should not be repeated. Whereas in America, we've done a terrible job of focusing on how bad enslavement was and white supremacy is, even though there are all these damn monuments all over the place. And so when I'm talking about, you know, w what I address in my work, I think that like mining the history, say, of slave rebellions, which is really, really important and foundational to understanding America, some people get freaked out because it's actually challenging the, the cohering ideas that, that are operative today, not just about the past, but of how life should be today. Mm -hmm. That's a perfect segue because I, I wanted to uh, talk about the, the, the slave rebellion reenactment you did in, in um, 2019 and, 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 talk about that and talk about that project and give us some detail if you would. Okay, well, Slave Rebellion Reenactment was a project that reenacted the largest rebellion of enslaved people in the history of the United States. That was a rebellion that happened in 1811 outside of New Orleans. And the people there had this audacious and bold plan to um, rise up, overthrow the system of enslavement, seize all of Orleans territory, which is modern day Louisiana, and set up an African Republic in the New World, which would have basically outlawed slavery much the way they did in Haiti, which the, the Haitian Revolution was actually an inspire and a point of inspiration for many of the leaders of this 1811 revolt. And so I reenacted this as a community engaged project with 350 uh, black and indigenous reenactors. We marched over the course of two days. We marched 24 miles on the outskirts of New Orleans on the locations that this original rebellion happened. And we were in period costume and we chanted on to New Orleans, freedom or death, we're going to end slavery, join us. We had machetes and sickles and muskets and sabers. It was an army of the enslaved. And if you wanted to end oppression and exploitation, this was a beautiful, beautiful sight. If you wanted to maintain a white supremacist view of the past, it was a little bit unnerving and scary. 
Um, but it was it was amazing, and it was tremendously uplifting and powerful for the people who were embodying this history, um, as well as for a lot of the audience members who saw that saw this. And then we interrupted the historic timeline because this 1811 revolt, even if you don't know that history, you know that there w- was no African Republic in 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 um, what's modern day Louisiana, and so th- it didn't end with that. And we interrupted the historic timeline, and we sort of the the rebel army successfully got to the city of New Orleans, and we ended up in Congo Square, um, which was a place that was in, important for preserving of African culture. Uh, the, the, the Congo Square and a few places like it were places where Africans and Afro descendant people could could gather on Sundays um, and in traditional dress and with traditional song. And so the rhythms that laid the foundation for modern day, what we think of as American music, you know, initially starting with jazz, but also then going up to blues and hip hop and ry- rhythm and blues and rock and roll and R&B and bounce and trap and trance and disco and funk, all that is because of places like Congo Square. And so we ended up there and did a cultural celebration there. So um, it was an amazing project. And and I do want to say, again, we're talking about New Orleans. It was a project, sorry, talking about, uh, you know, you're from uh, North Carolina. It was a project that was started as a, a residency when I was at the McCall Center, which is in Charlotte, North Carolina. Even though the project took place in New Orleans, a lot of the initial support happened at this beautiful art center in, in Charlotte called the McCall Center. Mm-hmm. So so, so for you, it culminated in, in Congo Square, which which you see is, is, is um, an, a, sort of an epicenter for uh, American uh, musical culture. Would that be fair? Um, I would say you don't get American musical culture without Congo Square in a couple places like it, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's. It, I don't know if it's an epicenter, but yeah, it is. It without that, music as we know it doesn't exist. How about a epicenter? <laughs> yeah, good enough. We'll yeah. take that. All right. Um, you know, one of the things that fascinated me uh, about the, the slavery reenactment, that, that slave revolts just in general... I don't. I'm assuming they are not high on the list of uh, AP history uh, curriculum. But, <laughs> but, but given that the slave uh, rebellion that you depict in 1811 is, is among um, among the lesser known slave revolts. Mm-hmm. Any, any any thoughts why that may be? Well, I mean, if you ran a country that was exploiting and warehousing black people in prison, would you tell people that people rose up to try and overthrow them and almost succeeded? I mean, that would not be history that would be told. And so, I mean, look, in, in 1811, this rebellion, it, it, it all, all slave revolts and slave revolts were common. I mean, 10 percent of the, the, the transatlantic voyages carrying enslaved people had mutinies that were on them. There were over 250 documented slave rebellions of 10 or more people in the United States, but they were all long shots. They all were real long shot to succeed, but this one could have succeeded. And it, it there were some real reasons why it could have, but also some real reasons why it didn't. And a lot of that, there was a lot of luck in why it didn't succeed. And so, but the enslavers were terrified. They knew they could have lost everything. And so from day one, they started telling stories that, oh man, there's nothing to see here. You got to remember in 1811, New Orleans and more specifically Louisiana is not a state. It's trying it's gonna become a state a year later. And so if you're applying for statehood, it doesn't help your application to say, oh yeah, the, our, our our Negroes are revolting. <laughs> um and so um the, the, you know they kind of downplayed it and the governor sort of said, Yeah, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. And th- there was no internet at the time. And so the news stories that were reported 
were all from the perspective of the news stories that, that reported in New Orleans. So even though this rebellion was reported as far away as London and New York and, and Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, you know, the stories were all just basically cutting and pasting the stories that were printed in New Orleans. And so um, it wasn't until very recently, specifically 1995, when some people's historians, a dude named Leon Waters, who had family history with that rebellion, actually published a book that talked about this is what the history was, that scholars started to focus on it. Because to the degree anybody was looking at slave rebellions, and those mostly weren't looked at until uh, the mid-1940s, um, there wasn't a lot in the historic record that would have pointed people to this being a super significant one. And that's a real sort of crime and tragedy. And so I'm, I'm, I'm happy that there's more scholarship being focused on it and that this, this uh, artwork that I did has started to focus more, more people's attention on it. Um, the uh, Founding Fathers definition notwithstanding, assuming that freedom is, is, is certainly and liberty is part of natural law, would it, would, would it stand the reason that the slave revolts are an organic process to the institution of slavery or organic response, I should say, to the institution of slavery? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, wherever there's oppression, there's going to be resistance. And whenever people were enslaved, they fought against it. And that's just the as long as you're going to exploit people, expect them to hit back as if, as, as soon as they can. And so I think that, you know, I mean, you know, I, I think not only are they natural, but they're righteous. I mean, the people that were enslaved had the most radical view of freedom in the United States at that time. I mean, you know, you talked about AP history. Children are taught to study the words of, of George Washington and, and Thomas Jefferson and stuff to talk, talk about freedom. Well, modern day people would not understand freedom as being consistent with enslaving and owning people. But those guys did. The enslaved, on the other hand, saw that the big barrier to freedom at the time was slavery, that you could not get to a just society unless you got rid of slavery. And they came up with a plan to get rid of it. It was a, a audacious and bold plan, but that was what was righteous. And so people like you know, uh, Charles DeLons, who was a leader of this 1811 rebellion, but also Cook and Kimana and Mary Rose and Gilbert, those are the people who should be studied. If you want to talk about freedom, if you want to learn about freedom, if you and even democracy, those are the people you should study, not people whose very concept of freedom was predicated on owning other human beings. Hmm. Between the distinctions of art and activism, and sometimes I, I, I would assume that you, you, you hold that they sometimes blend together, is it your goal um, to create discomfort with your work, seeing discomfort is, is, is sort of the forerunner to change, or is just discomfort just, again, that sort of organic byproduct uh, whenever a portion of the American narrative has that has been glossed over that is finally being lifted up authentically? Well, I mean, I think, so, you know, th there's discomfort and there's discomfort. I mean, to... You know, you know, Malcolm X talked about, well, when when you know, and, and leaving aside questions of the analogy of house 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 slaves and, and field slaves. Yes. I mean, because I think all slaves were enslaved and, and, you know, the house slave didn't have it good. But his point was like, look, when when some people saw the slave master's house on fire, they wanted to go get a, a water and hoses and right. put it out. And other people said, no, nah, man, we wish we wish for a strong wind to burn it down. And and I think that, you know, for some people, slave rebellions are uncomfortable because they challenge a, a particular history. But for other people, it's like, damn, that's about freedom and liberation. So it's why, you know, it's like, you know, in, in 
you know, when the Freedom Riders got on those buses and they got their heads knocked in, some people, and it was a minority, thought, man, this is freedom. This We're going to get free. Many people, including a lot of black folk, were like, nah, man, this is not right. It's, it's, I'm uncomfortable about this. And certainly a lot of white supremacists were like, no, this is not happening. But I think that, that the question is you have to look at who's uncomfortable and by what. And so for me, looking at slave rebellion, I think armed black freedom fighters, people fighting against enslavement and the descendants of people fighting against enslavement, that's not uncomfortable. That is liberatory. That, that makes your heart sing. And so the, the question is, where are people's feet planted when they see something that feels uncomfortable? And, and so, yeah, I do think that sometimes discomfort is, is important. And I do think sometimes my art makes people, including people that I overall agree with, a little uncomfortable. I take them outside of their comfort zone. I don't, don't shy away from that. But I also encourage people, get comfortable with radical change. You know, as you were giving that answer, I was sort of thinking, I was actually thinking in the contemporary context of how some people are viewing um, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think you, you can, I can already just give this to you, but, but, but the idea, and, and these are my thoughts, the, the idea of a armed person of color being driven by a parent crossing state line to be in um, the midst of a demonstration, I don't, anyone that at least people that I know would not see him walking away with a not guilty verdict. And I wonder if you had any thoughts linking your work to that contemporary moment that I just referenced. Yeah, black man crossing state lines to be a part of a demonstration that's armed. He ain't gonna even get no trial. He's gonna be dead. Black people get shot for just being black. You know, I mean, it's, 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 um, you look at uh, uh, Philando Castile, the cop asked him, look, can you hand me your license? He says, I'm going to, and I just want to tell you, officer, I've got a registered handgun that's in my glove compartment. He got shot for that. Walter Scott, you know, in, in South Carolina, he got shot in the back while fleeing. Black people get shot w without being armed. If you if you talk about a black dude with an AR-15 walking around in public, that ain't going to end well. And so he, there ain't going to be no trial. And I think with, with my work and Kyle Rittenhouse, I mean, I think they're sort of the polar opposite. Kyle Rittenhouse is a white vigilante stalker going into the midst of a demonstration of black people fighting for justice for Jacob Blake, who was shot in the back by a, a cop. And and people were upset that this this is was going down. And this and Kyle Rittenhouse crosses straight lines as a vigilante and gets backed up by militias and the police. And so that's what's happening now by a judge that even says the people he murdered can't be called victims. And 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 so look, this is my work talks about a system that has judges like that and has situations where white you know, white teenagers can go play vigilante killers and get the support of the president of the United States. And so my work is talking about that, it is exposing that. And I, you know, I, I just think it's, you know, it is a, a sign of the times that this sort of, you know, a, a, a murderer with an illegal weapon is being talked about by some people as a hero and that large sections of the media, while I think uncomfortable, are not actually just saying, this dude is a murderer and a vigilante and he should be serving life in prison. You know, I'm fascinated uh, by a quote that has that is attributed to you, and I think this sort of gets at a lot of what we've been talking about thus far. Um, you, you, you said you can't un actually understand American society if you don't understand slavery, 
And you can't understand slavery if you don't understand slave revolts. Say more about that, please. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> you know, yeah, I said it. Um, you know, Chris Rock and and uh, right. no, it's yeah. it's. I I think that that that's really true. Actually, is that um, you know you 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 don't actually get Kyle Rittenhouse. You don't get um, you know Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd without slavery. You don't get disproportionate deaths of black people in a, by a virus without slavery. You don't get all of that. But you also don't understand America without and you can't understand slavery without understanding slave rebellions. The point you were talking about earlier, where you said that this is an organic response. And I was saying, well, yes, it is absolutely organic, but also it's it's widespread. People did not willing people were not slaves. People were enslaved and they were resisting all along. Now, sometimes that resistance was just survival to survive enslavement is 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 an important act of resistance but other times people were trying to grind up glass and put in masses drink other times they were trying to flee it as individuals as you know the great harriet tubman did other times they were trying to flee and form maroon societies and other times they were trying to have actual uprisings and there were a lot of those and if you don't know that you can have this you know mythical belief that black people just submitted to slavery and were happy slaves and going along with having all their wealth and life stolen and their spirits crushed and their families destroyed. And that's not true. And it actually reinforces sort of a white supremacist understanding of the world that, that has profound implications for today. But also, if you are trying to get free today, if you're a young person, I mean, I met a lot of young people, including at Johnson C. Smith University and, and, and other HBCUs, were they were talking about they didn't actually want to come here about slave rebellion reenactment while I was making it happen because they thought it was about slavery and they didn't want to know why their ancestors were they didn't want to hear more about the, the, their ancestors being slave but when they heard that it was about slave rebellion and that there were a lot of slave rebellions they were like why don't we know this and they wanted to shout about it they wanted to tell other people and so I think that that question of of how we get free today and who are going to be the freedom fighters today and who are going to be the descendants of the slave rebels today is a critical question for people that that you know are trying to look at all the hell people are catching and are looking at well where does Black Lives Matter go? Well, I think you know people should be studying these slave rebellions and see this uncompromising, no holds barred. We have to get free by any means necessary. Take that the, these rebels in 1811 had. Hmm. So much of your work, uh, in my view, is not. Uh, a rejection uh, of American history as much as it is a reminder that this too is part and parcel of the American narrative um, that stands in contradiction to that commitment to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I'd, I'd like your thoughts on that. Well, first off, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the original draft of that was life, liberty, and the pursuit of wealth. Um, and they and Jefferson was compelled to change that for for various reasons. So they initially were talking about, look, we, we can make money here. And so, you know, I, I, I mean, while I think it's a fair enough statement that my work is looking at U.S. history and is not critical of U.S. history. And I think that's or I mean, it's critically looking at U.S. history, but it's not trying to 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 get beyond it. Personally, I I do not share any love for America. I think the American experiment was one that was founded in oppression and is something that we can get beyond. I don't, you know, it's America is a real 
barrier to to people getting free, both in this country, but also around the world. And again, this vision of uh, uh, rooting our dreams of freedom in a document written by enslavers for a, a system that was about slavery, that's not, I mean, that's that's not a lofty vision. It's an outmoded, backwards-looking vision. We could do a lot better than that. And I think my art actually challenges and sometimes makes people uncomfortable, um, as we talked about earlier, to think about, well, what, what, why is it structural? I mean, there's an artwork that I did called A Man Was Lynched by Police Yesterday, which is a banner that has white text and a black banner that references the NAACP banner that just said, A Man Was Lynched Yesterday. They were doing that as part of an anti-lynching campaign to stop the scourge of lynching from, and they had it out outside their national headquarters from 1920 to 1938, the day after anybody was lynched. And some people have said, well, actually, it's, isn't it harsh to compare the police to lynch mobs? And I said, well, no, actually, it's not. You know, ask ask you know the 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 mother of of um, Tamir Rice whether it's whether she felt the same fear and dread that 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 uh, Mamie Till Emmett Till's mother felt. Um, and and we know actually that 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 police kill people at five times the rate as we're killed at the height of lynching, and so the terror that the the police institute in black and brown communities is the same terror that lynch mobs all over the United States you know exercised on on black black people back in the day, and so you know this this thing of I looking at history is really important for me in my art, but. I do it with a perspective of trying to challenge some of these foundational ideas so hopefully pe- people can get beyond America. Well, you, you, as you were giving that answer, I, I was going back to uh, the, the Kyle Rittenhouse and, and Tamir Rice and sort of juxtaposing those two and the response to those two. And one had a toy yeah. gun, one had a real gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old child sitting by himself, not hurting nobody, um, just with a toy gun. Police show up and two seconds later, he's dead. And Kyle Rittenhouse, a man who shot three people, killed two of them, drove across straight lines with a semi-automatic AR-15, and he he gets patted on the back by the police and allowed to walk away. And so there you have it. That that actually, glad you brought that up, I mean, because that actually tells you everything you need to know about this country. Hmm. you know, well, another thing about your work that, that struck me, I mean, I, I had a I had a lot of reactions because your stuff reminds me of other stuff and just gets me going. And um, I actually wish we had more time than we actually do to, to be in conversation with you. But it, it also reminded me of a book uh, by Cornell professor Edward Baptist, and the title of the book is The Half Has Not Been Told. It's, 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 it's a, it's a um a recount of of, of 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 many of the enslaved, and I see you uncomfortably reminding us, as I mentioned earlier, that this discomfort is a prerequisite for change. And you are presenting for pub for the public a portion of that other half, uh, maybe even more than that, but at least the other half um, that has not been told, at least not with equal veracity. And I wonder, would that be a fair assessment of your work, or how do you see it? Yeah, and actually, that's a really great book, and it it talks about the history of slavery and looks at how history, how slavery was integral to capitalism, mm-hmm. and how the enslaved were worked relentlessly under capitalism, particularly looking at cotton um, as the the mechanism for it, which was not the only crop that the enslaved were forced to grow. But um, and in in that book, he, I mean, the 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 title of the book comes from a conversation that somebody historically was having with somebody who was. Uh, uh, was enslaved, but it was during the time that they were free. And he, and he was like, 
look, man, you don't know the half of it. Yeah. And 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 then Baptiste says, well, all right, I'm going to tell this story based on that. And and I think and and in the the telling in the book, he talks about how the guy has seen all these couples, which are basically black people being walked hundreds of miles to market in chains and then sometimes loaded onto trains and 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 with just the meagerest of of um you know uh possessions and and how they were you know almost walked to death and 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 this guy is like look i've seen all of this if you don't know that you don't know anything and and so i think that that you know i, I hope that in small ways to actually get people to know the history that sometimes they aren't comfortable looking at and and they should should get more comfortable looking at because it is actually history and if um you know it's like and particularly for you know particularly i, I will say to to white people if they think of themselves as well, wait a minute i don't want to look at this history because i didn't own slaves I didn't have anything to do with that. It's like there was another book by Dennis Blackman who said something really insightful. It's like, look, he and and that book is slavery by another name. And he said, look, this is this is not your fault, but it is your inheritance. And it, and I think he meant that both in terms of the actual wealth that was generated, but also the problem based on that wealth. And so, no, you know, it's like white people. Nobody that's alive today probably directly owns slaves in, in the sense of chattel slavery, but the the situation that we've all inherited, the particular people that are wealthy or have some modicum of wealth, and I don't even mean like billions and millions of dollars. I mean, if you're, you know, white and your family got a you know GI loan in the 40s, you've benefited from slavery, you know? And so what do you do with that? Doesn't mean you feel guilty, but it does mean you need to acknowledge and get into that history of, of why the world is the way it did. If you look at police as somebody, there's, they're there to protect me. Well, that's not how most black and brown communities look at them. They might want them to protect them. They might call them it sometimes, but it's like, that's not, you know, we, every, every black family, when they're child, if they have children, when they get to be 12 or 13 or 14 and get a little bit bigger, we talk with them about how to survive an encounter with the police. And so you you need to look at this history, even if it makes you uncomfortable. And and I think that that's, that half that's never been told, both about slavery, but also about other resistance and other oppression, including about the police. I mean, I've done you know several pieces because I've known people that have been killed, they have family members killed by the police and seeing the, the pain that that causes those families and know that those one individual cases are tips of icebergs. And so, you know, you, you know, there's there's a lot to look at. This country is rotten at its foundations and and people need to be able to soberly confront that. Mm. You, you you mentioned the, the GI Bill. I mean, and even if you were um, an African-American, there's another layer there, because even if you were African-American and you uh, returning soldier and you qualify for the GI Bill at the local uh, lending level, there were still banks that were redlining, so that you yeah. were you were put in certain communities where um, the your property value did not accumulate the same pace as someone else's property, maybe two miles down the road did. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, racism is woven into the fabric of America, and there and it continues to get rewoven. And and talking about you know this is like okay, even if you qualify for a loan. You're not going to be in the suburbs. Your property value is going to be worth. You're both. You're going to be higher interest rates, but your property is not going to accumulate value. And then they're going to, your neighborhood's going to get blighted. And then it, there are services that won't be there. And then it's going to lose value. And so, something that was a means to accumulate, you know, 
middle class or even lower middle class lifestyle for a lot of white folk has been something that has just been a way to steal wealth out of black communities. And you know, this is by design, not like one person or even one group of people sits in a room and says, ooh, let's figure out how to screw over black people today. But you look at the, the 2008 lending crisis that, that happened where it was the largest transfer of wealth out of the black community since World War II that happened where you know a couple of banks decided to give loans to people they knew could not afford them and they were predominantly black, they paid higher interest rates and then they stole their houses when they couldn't pay. And then the, the whole housing market collapsed and the government you know bailed them out and we bailed them out. So it was basically the government saying, we're gonna enshrine and enforce this particular version of racism and we're gonna enshrine and enforce this transfer of wealth and the, the taxpayers are gonna pay for it. And so the, then, you know, then what do the people, what do quote unquote, we the people, which is I think a, a dangerous myth, but what do we do? Do we say, well, all right, we're just gonna fall for that same oak again, or right now as we're seeing, we're, you know, disgruntled white people who, who are being, who are having basically a fascist program marketed to them. And they're in some quantities embracing that. And it's the oldest game in the American book. We're broke as a joke, poor ass white folk are told to side with rich white folk against black people. And, and that's, that's American history. You know, it's like most white people didn't own slaves and weren't ever going to own slaves, but they were always told you could own slaves. And so you're going to side with Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and people who owned hundreds and hundreds of slaves and accumulated lots of money off the backs of enslaved labor and, and going to perpetuate that system. And that, that game is being rejigged and the rules are being slightly tweaked, but that's played over and over and over again. And that, that's what we're seeing where, you know, you got gerrymandering maps where it's like, okay, let's draw the map around these places so that there's no way you can, you know, ever challenge the rule of these now, this literally straight up fascist Republican Party. Dred Scott, it has truly been an honor to be in conversation with you. I, I can't thank you for your time. Thank you so much, sir. Well, thank you for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>